0: It's so amazing that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed in the garden as he was praying, he was thinking about you. And part of that high priestly prayer from John chapter 17, it says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them and that they may even be as we are one. It was Jesus's heartfelt desire uh, before he would be killed, before he would raise, before he would ascend on high, that the church would be united. that There would be u- unity amongst us and unity even to the point of being uh, uh, similar to the unity between God, the father and God, the son. A few weeks later, we read an account from the book of Acts that says that shows us that God actually answered that prayer. Acts chapter two, a description of the church in Jerusalem. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. Our passage of Scripture today in Philippians chapter 2 is going to show us what unity, how important unity is, and how unity will come about through humility. And as we take on that humility, we will be like Christ who was humbled and humbled himself. We will be exalted and our church will thrive. So many people read that, cha- that uh, passage in Acts chapter 2 and they think that cannot happen today. It can happen today. It's the same God, it's the same Lord, it's the same Holy Spirit. It will just take humility on our part to see that happen. So as we unpack uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today, let us focus our attention on being like Christ in his humiliation and believing in what Christ says about the exaltation that will happen as a result of that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you in faith this amazing passage passage of Scripture that is so theologically rich and so, so, so very practical. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to learn uh, from the apostle today and that the evidence of what we learn in this scripture would come true today and that we would be a church like the Church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 because we are like Christ in our humility. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, please turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Uh, and you might find your home group helps insert of assistance to you as we have basically three components here. We see the necessity of humility in verses 1 through 4, the example of humility in verses 5 through 8, and the result of humility in verses 9 through 11. So first of all, the necessity of humility, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, so you have a great connector here. You remember there were not verse and chapter uh, headings uh, in Paul's original letters when he wrote this to the Philippians. So he starts off here with so and that probably connects back to chapter one, verse 27, when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come or see you in absent, I may hear that you are being standing firm together in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So the Philippian church was Paul's ideal church in many ways. It was it was an example of what he was hoping the other churches would be like. And it was flawed because it contained people like us. And there is this there is a grown just ingrown selfishness with every human being. And sometimes that selfishness manifest itself in the way that we interact with one another in our church community. And we get a sense of some of this being a struggle in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul gives us a glimpse of some of the problems where he says, I, uh, and I entreat, Udoia and Syntyche to agree together in the Lord. There's a possible, it's possible that these ladies were not getting along together. And you know how people try to do, will often do, they try to get you to support their side of an argument. And then maybe there were some, some factions that were growing. Now, Paul has dealt with the Corinthian church with its many fashions where people are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Peter. And then you got the special, really religious group, I am of Christ, right? You know, there's always one that thinks they're better than everybody everybody else this he doesn't want this to be a problem here so so he is trying to get them to be unified now there's times when you don't want to be unified when people are compromising the truth of holy scripture when they are uh breaching uh what is appropriate doctrine that kind of thing there is a time to be disunified but by and large Uh, Within the church itself, people understand the standard when they come into a church. It's usually not some big theological issue, and it wasn't a big theological issue in the Philippian church. Otherwise, he would expose what was the bad theology. It probably had to do with standards, preferences, matters of personal choice, the way people like things. There's a certain thing they like and a certain thing they don't like. And people were beginning to be uh, be factions on this. And it's amazing. You know, we just have to be so careful of this. There is this tendency, you know, we're all kind of uh, had this legalistic tendency towards us. And those of you who think you're not legalistic, you may be the worst. You know, we just got to know that's always going to be there. And very often we think something is thus saith the Lord when it's actually thus saith Bob. We've got to be very careful about that. If it really is from the Lord, then it would be supported by, uh, by Holy Scripture, supported by really good doctrine. So as we come together, we need to understand there's certain things that I just have to let go of. There's none of us that like every single song that we sing on Sunday, right? Some pop people want longer sermons. Some people want uh, shorter sermons. The more holy people want longer sermons. The less, no, the uh, there, there, some, some people don't like the way we do certain things, but there's certain things we all kind of sacrifice for the sake of unity. Again, without compromise. There are things that we, that we should be willing to break fellowship over. You know, we, we, we recited the Nicene Creed. You know, uh, you, know, you began to look like your hero after a while. One of my heroes is St. Nicholas, Right. All right, so Santa Claus. Santa Claus is at the Council of Nicaea. My favorite story from the Council of Nicaea, you know it's my favorite because I've repeated it 45 times, is when Arius is up there talking about how Jesus said in God and Santa Claus goes up and just slaps him upside the head. The church might be in better shape if we started slapping heretics again. You know, let me, can you edit that? Uh, but anyway, it's, and there's, a, there's actually a painting of Santa Claus slapping Arius upside the head. But, uh, she, never mind. Uh, so this unity, this unity issue is important, and what Paul is going to do here, he's going to remind people of who they are in Christ, always with the indicative source, who you are in Christ, and then the imperatives, what you do about it. You get that reversed, you become Muslim. You start earning your way, your God's approval. So He's going in through here with all these if-then statements. So we start off here with these these uh, these four recollections of who they are in Christ. Now, the idea of if here might be better translated because, or since, or so. So we start off here with the first one, if or since there is any encouragement in Christ. That idea of encouragement is paraclete. It's what the Holy Spirit is called. It's a coming alongside and, and, and a blessing. And notice that there's that wonderful term that Paul loves. He loves that preposition with the Lord's name in Christ, in Christ. If Paul were to tell, tell you, uh, you know, a definition of a Christian, it's someone who is in Christ. And that's so unifying. We're in the same Christ. We are in love with the same Christ. If you've ever met a foreign Christian who doesn't even speak your language, but you know they're a Christian, you can tell sometimes, can't you? There's a unity there. So we are in Christ together with this great encouragement. There's a, if there's any comfort of love, that idea of consolation is actually speaking closely with someone for comfort. Speaking someone. Have you experienced that as a Christian? If you've ever been through a very difficult, the death of a loved one or anything, you know, you know sometimes there is a peace that comes that's beyond the circumstances that cannot be explained. When the Lord comes close to you and just reminds you of how much he loves you. It, 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 this reminds me back when my children were babies and, and I used to hold them. And, and I, would just, I would just have this kind of, uh, this daddy loves Meg, daddy loves Meg, daddy loves Meg. And you could just feel them relax. How good God is that he just holds you like that. Just God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And you keep thinking, but I'm such an idiot. I'm such a sinner. I just do stupid things all the time. and say, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. You've experienced, if you're a real Christian, you've experienced that. You've experienced this encouragement. You've experienced this comfort from love. How about any participation in the Spirit here? That idea of participation is our word koinonia, fellowship. We, uh, We have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable that God actually lives in us? We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So what do we do about that? Well, Paul tells the Galatians you are to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. You listen to what he says and not what your not what your glands tell you to do. Ephesians chapter four, he says we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Again, the reason why we can play aside our personal preferences and come together is because we have the exact same Holy Spirit within us. If you're a genuine Christian, if there's any affection and sympathy, that idea of affection is that is that term that we use that, that talks about the the bowels, the the, the heartfelt emotion that we can experience at times sympathy is a word that's often used of god's mercies there's an emotional connection that we ought to have with one another that helps uh, unite us now to do that you've got to know one another you've got to know one another's struggles you need to be praying for each other you need to you need to get into other people's lives you have to be willing to be inconvenienced by the people that are around you if you're going to have this kind of affection and this kind of sympathy And this is the kind of affection and sympathy that Christ has for you. What a comfort are these verses? Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 12, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Isn't it a blessing you don't have to earn God's favor? That Christ seeks out those who are humble enough to know they really need him. They need a savior. They're not able to save themselves. They, you, you, come, you come with sin and all covered with the filth of your own refuse and Jesus just holds you and cleans you and takes you to eternal glory with him. If there's any affection, any sympathy, that's the kind of love and sympathy we should have for one another instead of assessing whether or not anybody's worthy enough to be our friend. Well, because of these great recollections that who you are, he now kind of gives you five aspects of unity. But he starts here, he says, he says, then because of these things, complete my joy. Paul, Paul's a pastor. Pastors, church officers, they have feelings. Even Presbyterian church officers have feelings, right? And, and, and there, there, are, there are sheep, there's some responsibilities that sheep have in regards to their, uh, their authority, their elders, their deacons. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And then he goes on to say, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't make don't make life difficult for your church officers. Now, that doesn't mean you can't come to them with your problems, with your issues, with your sin, with your mistakes, but by and large, you ought to recognize that you ought to have as part of this community that we're trying to be in, part of this humility, part of the unity is to is to be a, let your church officers know about all the good things that are happening, not just about the tragedies and the difficulties. So Paul wants that. We want that here in this church. And how do you do that? Well, he gives us five points here by being of the same mind that literally means to think the same thing. Uh, In first Corinthians, Paul says that we are to have the mind of Christ. Okay, and what are those things that we should be thinking about? Paul tells us that in uh, verses four, uh, uh, chapter four, verses eight through nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you all. You really might have to limit some of your social media stuff. You may have to limit some of your news. I was going back over this point right, right, right after I saw a video clip of some thug in California beating up an 82-year-old woman. And I was so vexed by that. And I had a hard time thinking about things that were pure and lovely and commendable and right and holy and good. Now, we don't want to be ignorant. We want to know what's going on. But, I, but to dwell on these things can increase, can increase our bitterness. It can make us fearful. It can make us anxious. It can make us angry. We are to be people who, who have good thoughts. Whatever passing pleasures of sin, whatever lust that you might try to gratify, it pale. the joy that you might receive temporarily is nothing compared to the joy of dwelling on good things. And when you do that, you come into a community of other people doing all good things. And we build each other up instead of tearing each other down. By having the same love, this is the result of having the same mind. We have the same love. As Christ has a love for us, we have a love for one another. Uh, And and basically, a lack of unity is going to come from those two things. A lack of having the same mind and a lack of the same love. You know, one of the nice things about our church, one of the things we've done right, and there's plenty of things we need to improve on, but but there's no bait and switch with this church. I mean, if you go to our website, that's us. Uh, we are we are a a, a Protestant church. We uh, we hold the values uh, uphold the values of the Reformation. We are based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. We believe in the, the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. We are teaching oriented church. Uh, we have historic reform worship. I mean, you can't even get past the the front door without seeing the five solas of the Reformation, right? So, so no one's going to come in here and think, man, I was really hoping to be entertained. You know, you know, where's the fog machine? You know, no one's thinking we're going to have a fog machine. We're never going to have a fog machine. You know, if we had the money, we would buy more chairs, right? There's no bait and switch here. You know, so that helps. That helps. You, just, you don't know what we don't have to deal with because you, you know what you're getting when you come in here. You know what you're getting when you come up here. Now, I think we can improve things and all that kind of stuff, but there's sort of a unity that, that, that occurs here. Then we go with, with uh, being of a, a full uh, accord with one mind. That idea of, uh, of unity there, united in spirit, intent on one purpose is what New American Standard says. That literally means one sold, one sold. Back Way back when, when Nancy and I got married, we were just so impressed with the text of First Samuel 18. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Now, that's not a sexual love. That is a companionship love and everything. But Nancy and I saw that. That's what we want. We want to be one-souled, one soul. The two have become one. Y'all, that takes effort because you've got two selfish people trying to become one, Without effort, without prayer, without the work of the Holy Spirit, without the ministry of the word, you're going to be fighting each other all the time. you are gonna be like uh, the, the wrong side of a battery. You want to come together and be one sold as a church. Then do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The New American says, uh, Bible says uh, selfishness or ambition. Uh, it, it's just this idea of if, uh, I've got to get one on top of this guy. I've got to promote myself beyond him. He's a threat to me. She's a threat to me. I see you when you see your brothers and sisters as competition, you have failed this point. And y'all, you think, how can that ever happen in church? Y'all, this church is contained, is filled with people who are refugees from other churches. Most of you have seen this kind of thing. And it starts small a lot of times, but it ends up being huge sometimes. So we are not to be this way. You know, we are not to be the factions like you had. Uh, and, and what's that going to That's just going to take humility. It's going to take an anti-conceit. This idea for, it's interesting, this idea for, for humility and conceit, the idea of conceit, uh, the, the Greeks did not revere humility. They thought humility was base. It was like a, being a slave. It was kissing people's feet and that kind of thing. But they did understand conceit. When someone thought they were better than who they they usually, well, they, they really are. And they had a word for it and a word we still use today. Hubris. Hubris. Y'all, there's no room for hubris in our church. There's no room for hubris anywhere in Christianity. That kind of arrogance Is the stuff of the world. Rousseau, the Enlightenment philosopher, said this I rejoice in myself. (laughs) You got to get in there, right? My consolations lie in my self esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues to me. Can you imagine? And yet, in many ways, the secularists, humanists, think that's the answer. We'll fix all the crime, all the problems of poverty and everything if we just get people to have higher self-esteem. If they think more about themselves, you're just going to make it worse, folks. You're just going to make it worse. Oscar Wilde, the great uh, Irish uh, playwright, said this uh, when he was coming through customs. They said, is there anything to declare? And he said, only my genius. Okay. They ain't welcome to be members of our church. (laughs) Right. That's going to do nothing but cause problems. Stephen Lawson says this, no one struts through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks. Servants, not sovereigns. John MacArthur says this, discord and division are inevitable when people focus on their agendas to the exclusion of others in the church. You know, we we have this consuming interest in glorifying God. In our church. It is it, it's just kind of in everything we do. And and that just keeps us safe. Because it, it's not about you, it's about him. Go on to verse five here. And how do we do this? By uh, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. When you walk into a room, you shouldn't be thinking, Boy, I can't wait to tell them about my weekend. You think about I can't wait to hear about his weekend. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the positive solution to this negative imperative, imperative to avoid rivalry, to be humble, to be humble. Now, again, if you understood Greek culture, you understood Roman culture, this is radical. It is radical. What Paul is saying here is I want you, the culture looks down on humility. I want that to be a supreme virtue. Because only through that are you actually be able to get along together in the church. And this idea of humility, this isn't just a Paul thing. It's all throughout Scripture. Numbers chapter 12. Now, the man Moses was very humble more than any man on the face of the earth. Isn't that interesting? It's a virtue that goes all the way back to Moses. Matthew 5, 5. The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. First Peter 1, 5 i Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And now, one of the things we know about Paul, Peter, Moses, is they came to those lessons the hard way, didn't they? Moses, I'm going to rise up, I'm going to kill that Egyptian, I'm going to free my people myself. Boom. How about you spend 40 years being a shepherd? Paul, I am, I am at the height of Judaism. I am the young Turk of my, of my people. I'm going to wipe out the church of God. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I'm going to make you blind for three days and let you know how much you've got to suffer for my name's sake. Peter, <laughs> they may fall away, not me, right? Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I'd rather you learn it not the hard way. It ain't going to happen, but I'd rather, I'd rather that be the way it is. So there's two sides of this practical humility. You look not only for your own interest, okay? Now, by the way, some of you are sensitive spirit. I'm sensitive spirit. When you hear, you hear this idea that you've got to look out for other people's interests, notice what Paul says. He's practical. You, you do need to look out for your own interest, right? And God's not causing you, calling you to be a doormat, Okay. But you are to look also look for the interest of others. Have an awareness of other people's needs. Guess what? You will not know what their needs are if you don't know who they are. That's why you've got to build community. And Sunday mornings not going to do it. I mean, we love Sunday mornings, right? But it's hard to really get to dote somebody deeply on Sunday morning. So we encourage you to go to our weekly Bible studies. Uh, Go go to home groups. Attend those things. Participate in the various activities. And how about this? Have people over for dinner. Open up your home to, to the church of Jesus Christ. Get to know people. Help people. Babysit people. Help them with chores. Help them to do different things. Christendom said this. There's nothing so foreign to a Christian as arrogance. Let that be the truth in our church. Now we see here the example of humility in verses 5 through 8. And this is really what Paul is doing. Paul he sets out here some of the greatest theological truths in all of Holy Scripture. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. But he's not doing it in order to teach a theological lesson. He's doing it to point you to the example of Christ. It, he's really being more pastoral than he is here to be theolo- theological. But you don't want to miss the theological import of what he's about to say. So we look at the example of humility is Jesus Christ. I'm <clears throat> picking up with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul's telling us we ought to have this same kind of example here. And many people think this was actually an early church hymn. They used to sing this humiliation, exaltation. Paul's pointing back to the thing that they sing to say, you need to be that way uh, as well. And the whole emphasis here is on humility, 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 humility. Again, we, we we need to wage war on pride in our culture, but also upon ourselves. Prideful people think they can get to heaven because they're so wonderful. Oscar Wilde probably thought he could go to heaven because he was so wonderful. But we understand the need for humility. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles of Christianity, he replied, first, humility, second, humility, third, humility. Why? Because it's the mindset of Christ. So he was humble from all eternity. He says here, though he was in the form of God, did not account equa- uh, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped. This idea of existed means uh, in the Greek is literally under beginning. It means an absolute, unalterable uh, uh, state. He's inalienable. He's unchangeable. So in other words, and you may not have thought about this, but before the son of God took on human form and conceived in the womb of Mary, he was humble then in all of eternity. He was humble. He has always been humble. Humble. This idea of form of God, it means a manifestation of the inward reality. Jesus preexisted in the divine form of God. He was equal with the Father in every way. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of God, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That wonderful uh, uh, opening statement of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Through whom also he made the world. Jesus made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of the power of his power. Jesus is the one that keeps the atoms from falling apart. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what the point is, is while he was God, he refused to hold on to his divine prerogatives. He did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, Jesus gained by adding humanity. He didn't give up any of his deity, but he wouldn't grasp it either. And the interesting thing about Jesus, he wasn't obligated to do this. He did this because he loves you. Now, we have a hard time giving up our rights, our prerogatives, our, our power and everything, but he gave it all up for you. Uh, the, uh, this illustration might sound a little trite, but it might help some of the young people. Black Panther, all right? Great movie came out. I think it's a num- box office hit. Chabot, Bozeman, Anderson, native was the Black Panther. There's a scene in Black Panther. Where um, where he's the king of Wakanda and he's got a rival. And part of the rules is he has to give up his superpowers before he can fight the rival. And there's the same when they're on this this place where they're going to ba- have this battle with this evil guy and then the good king uh, of Wakanda. And he and he eats something that takes away his ability to be Black Panther, takes away his superpower. He he forfeited his right in order to have an equitable fight right there. That's what Jesus did. I had one professor said Jesus didn't have this God button where if he just got real tired he would just go boom. I'm not tired anymore. I'm really hungry. Boo. I'm no longer. He didn't have that. He was tired. He was hungry. He was grieved. He was oppressed. He didn't just all of a sudden. He 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 didn't. He didn't just say I'm not going to put up with this anymore. He he emptied himself. He made himself of nothing. He was humbled as a man. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. uh, uh, Or or it says emptied himself in some of the translations here. It means to be made void. He made himself nothing as to his divine rights. He made himself nothing by adding to his divine nature, human nature, not taken away from his divine nature. And he took the form of a servant. Y'all, That war, that's slave. That's slave. See, so we have a hard time humbling ourselves. How? Because we think, well, I don't want to lower myself. How low did God have to come to become an impoverished slave? He took on the form of a slave. Y'all, slaves don't even own the clothes on their back. Everything is a... Jesus had no place to lay his head. He had no money of his own. He was completely dependent upon the provision of God. He took the form of a servant. And this is what he says. We ought to have the kind of attitude. During the parable of the servant, uh, uh, servant, he closes in Luke chapter 17. So you too, when you do all the things which you were commanded you to say, we are unworthy servants, we have done only that which we ought to have done. We're just servants. Disobedience is really, really hard, but that's kind of the minimum, Right. Worship on Sunday, going to home group—that's just kind of the minimum. Making sure that our house is a house, a house that's devoted to prayer and to uh, to the rearing of godly children and to uh, and to those things that are good and clean and upright. You know, that's just the minimum. It's just God doesn't owe us anything. We're just being servants, and that's where you find your truest joy. That's where you try to find your. This, the discontentment comes with an expectation that it higher that it is higher than what God expects you to have. And what happens is we think God owes us. And and if there was ever a culture on the planet that's an entitlement culture, it's ours. And y'all don't think that doesn't affect us. God owes me wealth. He owes me health. He owes me looks. He owes me obedient children. He owes he owes me a, 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 a lawn without weeds. I mean, you just fill in the blank. He owes you nothing. He owes you nothing. We are but servants. I want this on my tombstone in case I forget to tell you right before I die. I've seen the way y'all eat at dish meals, though, and I'm probably going to outlive most of you. Uh, But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. You know, that's you, too. You're a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. I mean, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Moses would have given anything to be sitting in these chairs right now and to be able to hear from the Apostle Paul. They saw it in the distance. They didn't see it. But 2,000 years ago, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have a complete Bible. We understand the Son would have to die for our sins. So Jesus was also, number three, he was humbled in death and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. I mean, he took on a human form with all of the temptations, all the difficulties, and everything. I mean, that's just a remarkable, remarkable to me. Would we volunteer to do that? I think not. And became obedient to the point of death. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I lay my life down and take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And then I love the point Paul makes, even death on a cross. Can you imagine a worse death than a death on a cross? It was designed to be prolonged, painful, and utterly humiliating. The Persians started it, the Romans perfected it to that Roman perfection. Jesus literally hung naked and exposed. And you, you eventually die because your diaphragm breaks. But he had been so beaten he died, he died early. And yet he endured that. He despised the shame but he did it because he saw you. A great illustration of, of what it means y'all. What it means for us to have this kind of humility. So that we can have the kind of unity that Jesus prays for. And that was exemplified in the Jerusalem church. Is is the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, right? Do you remember all that? You remember the triumphant entry? You remember going to Jerusalem? You remember what the the apostles were saying there? You remember what John uh, and, uh, and and uh, Peter were arguing and James were arguing and they were thinking, which one of us is going to be the greatest servant? Which one of us is going to be so lowly that we can worship? the? That, that's not what they said. It was like, who's going to be the greatest? Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? You know, this is the, a constant conversation they have in. And what ends up happening is they go to this upper room, right? And they go in, and as the custom is that they should have a servant to clean your feet, because you've been walking in Jerusalem all day long in sandals, right? So you have, and, and there's no servant there. There's a basin of water, there's a towel, but there's no servant a sign there. And a matter of fact, washing someone's feet that the Mishnah said you could not force a servant to do it because it was so humiliating to do. So they all walked in. They're all talking about how wonderful they are. They're, they can't wait for Jesus to come in. He's come back into Jerusalem. He's going to be the king. He's going to whoop up on the Romans. We're going to store this new kingdom of David. And we're going to be on his right and his left. And, th- and they all passed that basin. They all passed that towel. They're waiting for somebody else to wash their feet. And what does Jesus do? He takes the towel, wraps it around, him, goes up and washes every one of their feet. Every one of them. And they were scandalized. You're the Lord. You're the master. And he's thinking, and you didn't do this. And he says, I do this. So then he washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. He says, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do just as I did. Truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you do these things, you are blessed if you do them. He had an other's orientation that he was willing to humiliate himself even beyond what a common slave would not even be expected to do in order to serve others. I love this, uh, this principle that came up in a couple of the commentaries I was studying. That the idea, of course, we know from Romans chapter 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. But, he, but he's sort of Adam in reverse, And the the doctrine here, this is one reason why we believe uh, uh, in in, in a biblical theology that says the story from Genesis to Revelation is one story. We don't break up human history uh, based on man failing and God restarting the program. Genesis to Revelation is one story. And you see that continuity all throughout Holy Scriptures. But you think about Jesus as the image of God. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, Adam, Adam was made in the image of God, but grasped after equality with God rather than emptying himself. Jesus was obedient. Adam was disobedient. Jesus was tempted in all things and did not sin. Adam was tempted in one thing and sinned. Jesus was a servant. Adam wanted to be a ruler. Jesus conquered death. Adam introduced death into the world. Jesus made people righteous. Adam made people sinners. C.S. Lewis says this in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world with him. And that's where we get the part, the result of humility, which verses nine through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. To the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. The road to exaltation is traversed on your knees. Matthew chapter 23 says this, that the greatest among you shall be the servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Hebrews 12 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter, 1 Peter five, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. One commentator says this, the point is that no one ever truly humbles themselves before God without being exalted by God, whether in this life or in the life to come. Moses is the greatest hero of the, of the Old Testament. And there was no one more humble than he. And bestowed on him the name is above every name. As Hebrews three said in verses six, uh, chapter one in verses three, six and eight, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. When he brings the firstborn to the world, he says, let all the God's angels worship him. And a son says your throne, O God, forever and ever is the scepter of righteousness and the scepter of your king. And what's going to be the result of that? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And he even gets specific about where those knees and tongues are located. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the angels and the unredeemed dead who are waiting final judgment and punishment will be included in that number. Every tongue will confess this idea is Lord. That is the great exalted name of Jesus. Revelation 19 on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is deity. Now, Paul, again, being an Old Testament scholar himself, borrowed this principle from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word and shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength it shall come, and they shall be ashamed, all who were incensed to get me against me. And the Lord and all the suffering of Israel shall be justified and shall glory every tongue, every knee. Who does that include? It doesn't exclude anyone. It includes Satan, his demons. Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Nero, Muhammad, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, and your cousin Joey. Every knee, every tongue. It may be by force. I don't know. If you don't know the Lord now, if you're not born again, if you're not a true Christian, you may put it off in this life. But at some point in time, you will bow a knee and you will recognize he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We would. Have it that you become a Christian now, that you surrender your life to him, that you recognize his hold upon you, that he is Lord, that he is king, so that you can bow a knee and sing praise to him voluntarily and with joy and not because you're just utterly humiliated and under judgment. And what does Jesus do? All to the glory of God the Father. Does it strike? I mean, if you look at human history, The regicide that has happened—the killing of kings—and how sometimes uh, you see, especially this in some of the caliphates and everything, you would see the son, the father kill the son, and the son kill the father. You know, but notice that there's no jealousy of God the Father of the Son, because the Son did this for the Father's glory. Christ. Christ's universal acknowledgement as Lord and King is a blessing to the Father. It's exactly what he wanted. Matter of fact, we have an entire chapter in Revelation that speaks of this moment. This moment that every one of you who are Christians are going to be able to see, be part of the chorus. They're going to witness personally. I call it a worship came from this, but let me read it in just tired as we start to close here. Revelation chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll. Written within and on back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. This is John speaking of his vision. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth. Was able to open the scroll or look upon it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look upon it. And then one of the elders said to me. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and between the throne and four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb talk about humility. I saw a lamb standing as if though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent all into, into all the habit of earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels uh, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down to worship. Y'all, that is an historical fact that has not yet occurred. And that is fact because Jesus was willing to humble himself. And his number one goal, it seemed to be on the night that he was betrayed, was for you to humble yourself. And for us to be united and for the things that were said of that Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2 would be said of us. The Apostle Paul closes with his benediction with Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus, that together you may be with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Lord, make it so. Father, I pray, God, that you would help us to overcome our pride, our selfishness, our self-orientation. And to live this kind of united humility for your glory. We always think when we put someone else first, we're going to lose something. But yet what we gain is out of this world. I pray, God, that you would help us to go to school on Jesus Christ and his example on the Apostle Paul and on one another and help us to be united as we seek the Lord on our knees and we will be part of that wonderful chorus giving glory to God. In Christ's name, amen.